Hello, and welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly dose of rapid-fire board game reviews. I know I say this a lot, but we have a terrific episode for you. It's the moment everyone has been waiting for. Ruth starts us off this week with Herbaceous. Stephanie tells us a tale of Bunny Woe in Coon vs. Lakia. Lindsay gives us a five-minute review of The Gallerist, a feat I thought previously impossible. Mason talks about nations. No, not the dice game. The big one. And I'm reviewing Jaipur. Alright, get out your garden trowel. Here's Ruth. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and this week I'm starting us off by talking about one of the most beautiful games to be released in 2016. And it's saying something as there were a lot of great looking games released that year. But Herbaceous, designed by Dr. Steve Finn, stood out from the rest, by leveraging the work of Beth Sobel to great effect. And I'm not just saying that because she designed our logo. I originally saw some of this art in Beth's personal reskin of the classic card game Bonanza, and was delighted when I found out that Eduardo Braff of Pencil First Games was developing it into its own game. Herbaceous is centered around gardening, with one to four players taking turns to first plant herbs in both their own private garden and a shared common garden, before deciding whether to harvest from one or both of the gardens available to them. These harvested plants will be placed into one of their varied planters and pots, each of which has its own roles about just what can be planted in it. However, since each planter can only be filled once and cannot be added to later, players have to decide between waiting until they can plant more herbs for more points, or planting quickly before another player grabs the herbs they were eyeing in the common garden. And players are incentivized to take from the common garden, denying their opponents, because if they leave their own garden to flourish, all unpotted herbs in their private garden are worth an extra point at the end of the game. The game seems simple, but it's elegant and the decisions are really interesting once players grasp what's going on. The planting step in particular can be stressful, but in a good way, mainly due to what Mason referred to as the fin drop when discussing Biblios in Episode 3, an older game by the same designer. This is a mechanism apparently beloved by Dr. Finn, in which players must distribute one card to each of a number of different locations, but when doing so, they have to take each card from the deck in turn and decide where to place it prior to seeing the next card. In Herbaceous, players must plant one card in their own garden, where only they will have access to it, and plant one card in the common garden where everyone can harvest. Being forced to make the decision on where to plant the first card and knowing the other must go into the other garden creates a nice degree of tension, as players have to weigh up whether it's worth forgoing exclusive access to the card currently in their hand, with the hope that the next one will be even more attractive. And then there's the decision of when to plant. Do you grab those three pairs now before another player does, Or do you hold out for another round in the hopes of grabbing a larger set for your container? It all boils down to how far you dare to push your luck, and it all comes together beautifully. Speaking of beautiful, then there's the art. Each card is illustrated with a full painting of its herb, and the minimal graphic design means that, while the card's name and potential points are clearly visible, the art is still the focus and is completely unobstructed. The backs of the cards have been illustrated with traditional appearing playing card backs, but on further inspection, those patterns have been created from plants and herbs. Further boosting the table appeal of the game, it also comes with plant tags to thematically designate each player's private garden. My husband and I have played Herbaceous in public and ended up having to explain it to curious waiters drawn to our table largely due to the attractiveness of the game. Overall, Herbaceous is a winner. It's beautiful, the theme is familiar in that it's planting crops, but it's different enough to stand out as something special, and it provides a satisfying experience for its 20-minute playtime. 
It's the sort of game I can play with a variety of people, which is important as I play in both serious game groups and with less enthusiastic family members. The theme helps with the latter group also. It's friendlier and more welcoming than typical game themes, and the table appeal is huge, making it easy to convince people to give it a shot. You add in that short playtime, and it's just an easy sell. So I'd highly recommend checking out Herbaceous if you haven't already, especially if you're a fan of easily portable, quick-playing games full of fun decisions. It also plays well solo without resorting to a dummy player and without losing too much of the tension and back and forth. It's also readily available for under $20, and all of this just makes it a no-brainer in my opinion. So until next time, I'll be ignoring my black thumb while preparing to attend Unpub7 in Baltimore, but as always you can reach me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and then an F. Thanks for listening. Alfred Lord Tennyson once said, It's better to have loved and lost than never have loved at all. I'm not sure how true that is, but in Kuhn versus Lockia, players explore what happens when that loss is in full swing and gone past longing to full-out revenge. Think of Kuhn vs. Lockia as Romeo and Juliet, if they hadn't died and instead lived to enjoy wedded bliss, and then got divorced. Oh, and were rabbits. Also, I promise that one day I'll do a review that doesn't feature animals as the protagonists, but guys, today is not that day. Released in 2015, Kuhn vs. Lakia is a two-player game designed by Babis Gianos and published by Ludi Games. Just like in a real breakup, players are working to end up with the most stuff and with a good number of friends and family on their side. Players start with a small selection of cards representing assets they're taking with them in the divorce, which builds the starting point for this straightforward deck builder. Players take turn playing cards alone or in sets. Plot cards are used to set your ex up with some disadvantages or to give you the upper hand. Some cards let you hide away some hotly contested assets for you to keep from your former love. Cards can also be played to draw members of your previously shared social circle, or courtiers as they're referred to in this game, to your side of the argument. This also lets you add additional cards to your pool, and gives you a new ally that can help you in future turns and, more importantly, won't be helping your future ex-spouse unless they later convince that courtier to see things from their perspective. Some of these courtiers are supremely more important to one bunny or the other, such as having the king, Lakia's father, on her side, and Kuhn sure doesn't want to explain why his sister, the countess, sided with his ex-wife instead of him. Play continues back and forth until one person passes, triggering the end of that round and giving them a slight advantage for the next round. Their opponent gets to take two more actions, and then the next round begins. Unlike most deck builders, at the end of the round, your entire discard pile is placed back into your hand, creating the opportunity to really stick it to your ex over and over just like a real divorce. The end of the game is triggered when no more cards remain in three of the five courtier decks. Finally, points are awarded for the items you end up with, the courtiers on your side, and any other special card bonuses. Kuhn vs. Lakia, for being a game about divorce, is a delight to bring to the table. 
The artwork is charming, and it's a quick play with enough hand management tactics to keep things interesting. The one fault I do have to give it is that there have been a few instances where either I or my opponent jumped to such a lead early on that it felt like that person just steamrolled over the other, but that's most certainly a rare exception in the dozens of times I've played this game. The game is fast and sometimes brutal. Sometimes you'll find yourself in a string of short-term victories only to find your opponent is plotting a long game to turn everyone and everything against you. But what else would you expect in a game about lapine love that has come to an end? The game advertises a playing time of 15 to 30 minutes. Most of the games, for me, have fallen on the lower end of that spectrum. But that's not a problem because I'm often quite eager to pick myself up, dust myself off, and rehash this blighted bunny love story all over again. Unfortunately, Kuhn vs. Lakia, which retails for about $25, is becoming more and more difficult to find. But trust me, it's well worth the hunt if you're in the market for a unique two-player experience. This has been Stephanie Stone Rob for 5 by Games, and until next time, stay playful. Hello, it's Lindsay here, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about why The Gatherist was one of my top five games of 2016. The Gatherist is designed by Vital Lacerda and published by Eagle Griffon Games. It's a wonderful play game that lasts around 30 minutes per player, and the artwork is by Various, and I'll touch on that a little later. The Gatherist was kickstarted in 2015, around the time that I took a brief hiatus from board gaming. Having just brought my daughter into the world, I was in a permanently sleep-deprived limbo state. So when it finally came into retail in the UK, I was all kinds of interested in what I missed out on. What I discovered was an economic strategy and set collection game with a worker placement element. It came in a big beast of a box containing beautiful canvas tiles that literally are original works of art. Chunky pawns that look like they are wearing cute little berets. Well, I'm not quite sure if that's intentional or something I've just made up. There's a huge board sporting some gorgeous graphic design full of stuff that I had no clue what to make of, but all I knew is I wanted to find out. When I was pondering and agonising over my top 5 games at the end of last year, I couldn't not include this game. But why did the gallerist make such an impression on me? I guess I just felt like it offered something a bit more than average. As well as the complex decision making required, there's so much depth here and plenty of directions to take to be the best art seller in tabletop land. In the gallerist, you are discovering and promoting artists, collecting art pieces for your own gallery, selling them for cash, and ultimately the player with the most money wins the game. Each turn you travel to different locations on the board to take your desired action, and each area is grouped with two options, for example discovering an artist and buying an artwork in the same group, and you can't take actions from the same group twice in a row, you must always move on to another location, but there are some points around that which I'll come to in a bit. After each turn you take an executive action which is like an add-on. In your lobby and gallery area you need meeples that represent your visitors, and you use these fine guys and girls to buy your art. You get them in the door so to speak by spending the corresponding coloured tickets. For example, the white maples are collectors and therefore require a white ticket to move them from the main plaza to your own lobby and gallery. There are various ways you can pick up tickets throughout the game and this is where your executive action can come in handy. To sell a piece you need contracts specific to that medium of art you want to sell, such as a photography contract for a photo. And throughout the game you will need to hire further assistants to take certain actions and get more stuff done. What I love about the gallerist is there's so much going on, many aspects to keep track of and multiple ways to approach the game. If you lose sight of or neglect one thing it can really affect your end score. Once you've digested the roles, it's actually not an overly fiddly game in terms of the gameplay itself, but it requires a good deal of thought and strategy. I've played quite a lot since last year and I've tried a few different pathways. 
many of which echo how you may run a business in real life perhaps. You can bite minimum costs by discovering artists before your opponents and sell often, or you can build up your artist's reputation and fame and sell higher later on, but obviously this is a slightly longer process. It's also important to ensure you're getting the highest value spaces on the international market in an attempt to win the renowned artwork at the end of the game auction, which will gain you a decent sum of money during final scoring. You can utilise the meeples in your lobby area by using them to take reputation tiles that give you opportunities to increase your influence and money. Influence is another central aspect as this counts toward the end of game scoring, and during the game you can spend influence for money or use it to increase an artist's fame that gives their work a higher selling price. I also found the kicked out actions very clever. If you decide to move your pawn to a location where your opponent is present, you can kick them out, which means after the turn the kicked out player effectively receives a free action. And I like that after you've taken a spot on the board you can leave an assistant behind. So there are ways to take further actions and maximise your turns. And you'll face a number of decisions throughout the game. And you must also keep in mind your randomly selected dealer cards or objectives. And it's really difficult to decide what to keep in your gallery, and what to sell, and which art-loving maple to sell it to. I also have to mention that aesthetically this game is extremely attractive. And the art on offer throughout the game is actually original pieces contributed by artists. And a few are by Mr Lacerda himself. I've often found myself admiring some of the pieces as I'm playing and on occasion foregoing what I'm actually doing within the game just because I wanted the pink bunny sculpture. The quality is fantastic, a lot of very decent cardboard and cardstock, and I love the little wooden easels for displaying the auction pieces. The game also has a solo variant that I'm a little nervous but excited to try. Admittedly the setup is a little hard going, but I take the rough with the smooth, and the somewhat lengthy process is definitely worth it. This is often the time I conveniently go and make myself a cup of tea. What I found with the gallerist is there often isn't enough time to achieve everything you want and there's so many options open to you it can feel like you've only just about scratched the surface when the end of game is triggered. Having said that, I've had games that lasted longer than others and I've always felt like I didn't get to play long enough, which is actually kind of nice because it makes me want to play again the next day. So in conclusion, I think this is one of my top 5 games of last year because it's so unique in terms of gameplay and appearance, it's such a fantastic theme where the mechanics integrate beautifully and it works so smoothly. Despite being challenging, I've also found it's quite a chilled out game in some respects, and as well as giving the opportunity for deep strategy, it's a lot of fun, and always leaves me with a burning desire for just one more game. Thanks for listening, and you can see and hear more from me on my YouTube channel and Instagram where I'm shiny have meeples, or on Twitter as capital S, capital H, meeples, or my blog www.shinyhabmeeplesblog.wordpress.com. Bye for now! Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about nations. I want to start with a confession. I've never played Civilization, Advanced Civilization, Sid Meier's Civilization, Sid Meier's Civilization the board game, or Through the Ages. I don't want to talk about nations from the perspective of or in comparison to other civilization games. I don't particularly care which civilization game is the best civilization game, which one, quote, kills, end quote, the other one, or which one is the, quote, true replacement or successor, end quote, for Francis Tresham's original civilization. Not a single one of those topics is of any interest to me whatsoever. Published in 2013 by Lauta a Finnish board game company, and designed by husband and wife Nina and Rustin Hackinson, and brothers Einar and Robert Rosen, Nations is a Euro game, and a damn good one. Nations comes in a really big box, which we'll get to later, and has tons of cards in it, but don't let that intimidate you. You could happily play with only the introductory cards for the rest of your life, and Nations would still be a solid 8. But what is Nations? Well, Nations is a worker placement resource management game with a card market. I'm sure it will come as a shock to absolutely no one that I'm talking about another resource management game, and especially one with multiple interdependent progress tracks. 
In nations, everyone starts with the same basic resources, everyone starts with the same workers, and the same cards laid out in front of them, representing various aspects of the ancient world. The goal of nations is to get resources, build stability, gain knowledge, and grow your military strength, all in exchange for victory points by the time you get to the modern era. You place your workers on the cards you buy to add resources, stability, and military to your civilization. You have to grow food to feed your people, quarry stone to build monuments, uh, foster commerce to gain wealth, invest in education to build knowledge, and develop a stable military to prevent wars and gain colonies. Now, when I first read about nations, I was somewhat hesitant because of what I perceived to be the combat involved. I don't like conflict in games that aren't explicitly direct conflict. By that, I mean I don't want to build up a bunch of stuff if it's possible for you to come along and smash it all to pieces later in the game. That just depresses me. One of the things I love so much about nations is that the internal system is strong enough and flexible enough that you can choose to completely ignore the wars with no ill effect. You can preemptively buy wars so that they affect no one. You can even remove the wars from the game completely without any issue at all. Because the system is so flexible, Nations also plays beautifully as a solo game, and is absolutely in my top 10 solo games. The emotional arc in Nations is a lot of what keeps me coming back over and over again, especially solo. Even using only the introductory cards, no two games ever play the same way. It's difficult to use the same strategies game after game, because cards come out in different orders, cards are different prices, or they may just not come out at all every time you play. This becomes especially true when you add in the advanced cards, and even more so with the expansion, which I'll get to in a minute. Using the full decks, you could play dozens of games back-to-back -back and still not have seen every card potentially available. I absolutely love the art in Nations. It was one of the major selling points to me when I was considering buying it. Each one of the hundreds and hundreds of cards in Nations has an individual hand-painted watercolor, and I think they are absolutely beautiful. Nations MSRP is $99. US now, it's available online from between $65 and $85, but that's still a significant investment of your board game budget. However, I still think it's worth it. Now the expansion. Um, do you need it? No, you absolutely do not. Should you get it? Yes, you absolutely should, but only after you've played maybe a dozen times. One of the things they really got right in the expansion is that it doesn't come in its own fancy box that you're paying for. It comes in a cheap paper slipcover, and you don't feel guilty about throwing it directly into the trash after you've opened it. The added card variety and starting cultures add huge variability to each play, but an inexperienced player can easily get totally hosed by less than favorable card draws. Nations is by no means a super heavy game, but it's also not one I would put out in front of a gateway group. I think you'll benefit somewhat from being taught the game by someone as opposed to learning it from the rulebook. I learned it from the rulebook, but it also took me several plays before I really understood what was going on, as some of the iconography is slightly counterintuitive. Specifically, red things are good and black things are bad, which confused the hell out of me for the first several plays. Nations is definitely a don't-record-the-scores-of-your-first-game sort of title. So, who should buy Nations? People who love historical civilization building, people who like worker placement games, people who don't mind a slightly higher barrier to entry when learning something more complex, people who don't mind many euro-sized cards, people who have plenty of extra shelf space, people who don't mind paying a premium for a game that will see many, many hours of play over its lifespan, and people who are deeply attracted to small watercolor portraits of great leaders throughout history. I give nations 9 out of 9 Eiffel Towers built in the Syrian Empire's Industrial Revolution at the behest of Confucius. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. Hi, it's Mike, and today I want to tell you about the excellent two-player game Jaipur by Sebastian Pouchon with art by Alexandra Roche. Jaipur was first published in 2009, and my copy is from Gameworks. This game pits you and your opponent, 
which for me means my spouse or daughter, against each other to be the greatest traitor and get an invitation to the Maharaja's court. And while that may have been difficult in real life, Jaipur is a fairly light and quick game. You are collecting six types of goods and keeping up to seven of those cards in your hand at any one time. You can then sell those goods for rupees, which are points. The goods are diamonds, gold, silver, cloth, spice, and leather. You also have a personal herd of camels. Camels are great because they aren't part of your hand limit. They're kept in stacks in front of each player. You get points by selling goods, but let's face it, we all play for the camels. The simplicity of Jaipur is that you're only ever taking one of two actions each turn, taking cards or selling cards. Cards will always be taken from the center by row of five cards. If you take one card, it refills from the draw deck. If you take multiple cards, then you refill the by row with cards from your hand and or from your personal camel herd. If you take a camel, then you take all the camels in the row and replenish the by row from the draw deck. Selling goods is equally simple. There are stacks of tokens corresponding to each good type in order from highest to lowest rupee value. For each matching card of a good type that you sell, you take tokens off the top of the stack equal to the number of cards. You can only ever sell one type of good at a time, but you may sell as many of that good as you like, up to your hand limit of 7. Different good type tokens have different initial values, different numbers of tokens available, and different rates of diminishing returns for selling them. The most valuable goods, diamonds, gold, and silver, have the highest point values, but the fewest available tokens. So you want to sell those cards quickly, right? Well, maybe not. First, each sale takes up a whole turn, so you want some bang for your buck. Or rupees. Second, for the most valuable goods, you must sell at least two to make any sale. And lastly, there are second types of tokens that you can gain of selling three to five goods. These bonus tokens give you additional rupees for selling larger numbers of cards in one go, and really encourage you to save up for the larger moves. The five card sale bonus gives you a whopping ten rupees. That's absolutely worth waiting for. But unlike the goods tokens, you don't know the value of the bonus token until you draw it and look at the back, so you never really know what you'll get. It also means you'll never really know what your opponent's score is. And while I'm not a card counter, with just 55 cards in the deck and remaining sale tokens being face up, it's not hard to get a rough idea where you stand as the round starts to draw to a close. So you can decide if you want to try and drag the round out to get more points, or end it quickly to stay ahead. The current round of Jaipur ends when either three types of goods tokens are depleted or the draw deck is empty. Once either of those happen, you immediately stop and tally your score. Start by counting up the points on all the tokens you possess, and then the player with the largest camel herd gets a 5 point bonus. The player with the highest score that round receives the seal of excellence. Now, reset and start another round. Once any player receives two seals of excellence, the game is over. But on super busy days, when we're both tired from work, we've been known to play only one round, just to help clear our heads before bed. It's a fantastic game for that as well. So while the game is straightforward, there are two things to keep in mind while playing Jaipur. The first is camel management. You want to always have some camels so that you have increased flexibility. It's a fantastic feeling to scoop up a bunch of high value cards from the row and then backfill with camels. But if you do that with all your camels, you could end up being stuck with a couple turns of just drawing a single card. Taking a large number of camels from the by row is also a very powerful move, but then the whole row refills from the draw deck and gives your opponent a lot of options for completing sets to sell later. The other thing to remember, and I cannot emphasize this enough, is to never ever take the camel with the panda pelt on it from my wife. I made the mistake of doing that once and the gloves came off. I was subsequently crushed, and have been crushed in every game since. Pointing out that it's a panda pelt also doesn't go over well in this house, so if you're ever playing Jaipur with one of us, please remember to refer to it as a stuffed panda bear, and then wait for one of them to take it.
So that's Jaipur, a quick, light, and fun favorite for all of us. If you'd like to discuss camels, how they seem to have evolved millions of years ago in North America, or anything else related to even-toed ungulates, you can reach me on Twitter at Mike Grizzly. Thanks for listening to the 5 by If you'd like to follow us, please do head over to Twitter at 5 by Games, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games, or join our BGG Guild number 2810. You can listen to the 5 by on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or follow all of our links on the 5 by at fireside.com.